Uh, I've taken a couple of Sundays and ventured away from Ecclesiastes, but we're back in Ecclesiastes today, and the topic really is about money and wealth. Um, nevertheless, I want to read through chapter 2, because this book is so different, so unusual. Um, remember what I've said before about Ecclesiastes, that God doesn't enter into Kohelet or Solomon's world, doesn't enter into it. And so he's, sort of, he's really left on his own trying to figure things out because everything is under the sun, right? We know from reading this, you know, God essentially you know, is over the sun, above the sun, that's the idea, but Solomon has to figure everything out in this book without God's incarnation, if you will, right? Entering into it. He's, he's trying to figure things out really on his own. So, so I want to just go ahead and read through chapter 2 just for context's sake and because it is the word and I've been through quite a bit of chapter 1. So let's, let's just read through chapter 2 and then I'll enter into uh, the message itself. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under, the, under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house, also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the light of the children of man. So it became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. This is a guy who had it all. He had it all. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all my hands had done, and the toil I ex expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the, uh, the man do who comes after the king? Only what already has been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that this same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of, the wise as, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity. And striving after wind. This guy is very depressed. I hated all my toil, in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. 
Yet he will be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which, the toil, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all, the, all his days are full of sorrow, and his works is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better than for a person, for a person that, that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. What a depressed man. What a difficult place for him. This morning I want to begin with something that's not depressing, a little comical. Uh, at least I want to try to uh, begin that way. Um, Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is the little boy. Hobbes the tiger cat. What do, you think, uh, what do you think is the meaning of, of true happiness, Calvin asked Hobbes? Is it money, cars, and women? Or is it just money and cars? Hobbes has no idea to respond to that. This is a little kid, right? I mean, so he looks at us and says, uh, I don't know what to do with this one. Well, uh, the little boy, Calvin, he's been influenced by the world around him, right? Anyone here been influenced by the world around you? You know, I mean, isn't that really the purpose of our world right now? Doesn't it seem that way? You know, if you're too young for women, you know, I suppose women, if you're too young for men, is it just cars and money? Is it just money? Is that what it is? Is that the purpose? Um, yeah. Well, so it's in this spirit, it's in this spirit, I want to introduce you to Tom Corley. Tom Corley is uh, a very influential man. He's another one of those gurus, a popular gurus on the topic of money and wealth, someone that uh, Calvin would love to get an answer from. Uh, I think Tom Corley might say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he might say that is the purpose, getting all the money you can. I'm not really sure, because I don't know about his uh, spiritual well-being or where he's from or whatever in that sense. don't know him that well. But I do know that he's a popular guru, and he speaks about money and wealth, um, he, he says online, he says that, that, that uh, he's a dynamic and empowering speaker. Tom motivates audiences at industry conferences, corporate events, universities, multi-level marketing groups, and global sales organizations. Participants leave fortified and ready to excel both personally and professionally. Tom has shared his insights on various national and international network and cable television programs, such as CBS Nightly News, Yahoo Financially Fit TV, India TV, News.com, Australia, and a host of others. He has wowed listeners on so many prestigious nationally syndicated radio shows, including the Dave Ramsey Show, Marketplace Money and WABC. The Dave Ramsey Show, and I've made reference to the Dave Ramsey Show before. Not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. Um, now, Mr. Corley wrote an article not too long ago, and I was going to use it, and I'm using it today. I was going to use it a couple weeks ago. But it's, the article is about becoming a millionaire. 
if we were really honest and I asked you, come on, do you want to be a millionaire? Maybe a millionaire is not a big deal anymore because, you know, now I guess it's billionaires. But, you know, I mean, it takes more money apparently. But, but uh, if I were to get you a loan and say, hey, do you really want to be a millionaire? Some say, no, nah, I don't want to be a millionaire. Especially young people. They're so naive, right? I mean, we know a million dollars would go a long way to help us, right? Of course, we'd use it all for good. Of course, right? Of course. Um, anyway, he wrote an article on, on becoming a millionaire. And he pinpointed four ways to become a millionaire. What, this is the way that people become millionaires in our culture. And I'm going to give you number two, three, and four first, because number one is a little more realistic for most of us anyway. So number two, the dreamer's path. The dreamer's path. You notice the photo I used there has, you know, um, little paint brushes and so forth in the jar. Um, that's because it's the dreamer's path. Uh, Corley says that possibly 28% of the folks in his study, because he did a study of people who became millionaires, 28% of them were dreamers. They reached out. They did things that others wouldn't do. They're, they're, this include people like artists, right? Hence the paintbrushes. Artists, musicians. You know, if someone here writes a one-hit wonder, if you know, maybe you're inclined to that. Maybe you're very talented. Maybe we have a hidden musician in here. We we definitely have musicians, but maybe we have someone who just there's a there's a hit rolling around in your head. I don't know today. Uh, I don't even understand. I don't even get the music world. Do you get the music world? I'm getting too old. I can't even connect with it at all. It's like it used to be the top 40 thing or whatever. I don't know what they what do they do today. I need to be educated in music culture. But nevertheless, the whole artistic thing. 28% of his people, he's that 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 uh, among millionaires, 28% of them have become millionaires based upon artistic kinds of things. So dreamers, artists, actors, and so forth. There you go. All right. Then there is the company. Uh, climber's path or the, or the corporate climber path. Uh, this is also another large group. 31%. 31%. This is really the largest group here. 31% of the people who have really made it have followed the corporate ladder. So if you get a job with a good company and work hard and stay there 30 or 40 years, you can get there. That being said, um, you got to pick the right company got to get the right job. So there's a little bit of luck involved here, but you got a lot of hard work. 31% get there. So you have to stay with that company. Okay, so here's another one. This is your doctors and lawyers uh, group, the virtuoso path, right? This is why that so many people want to become doctors and lawyers. It's true. If you get the right profession, you see, you can be one of those who've made it. And I, I, please, don't uh, misunderstand me. I'm not putting any of these people down. It's not like that. It's just like this is the way in which, according to Tom Corley, this is the way that you get there, that you get there, the virtuoso path. Um, it took virtuosos in my study, this is what he says, about 20 years to reach an average net worth of $4 million. Not bad. Not bad. Um, takes a lot of sacrifice, though. I can tell you right now that uh, my brother's one of these. And he is really sacrificed, sometimes too much. But here's the number one path, the saver investor's path. This is the Dave Ramsey path. This is the way that you can get there. This is the way the little guys like us can get there, right? Uh, uh, 20, I think he said 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22%, 22
Yeah, 22% of millionaires, he says, chose to take this path to getting there. Um, they had four things in common. And this is like, wait a minute, this doesn't include many of us sitting in this room today. But nevertheless, is what he says. Number one, they typically had a middle-class income. And then in parentheses, many reached a six-figure salary early in their career, and they didn't. And if they didn't, they lived very frugally. So he's trying to say, hey, if you, if you just, like, maybe you don't make that much money, but if you just save, 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 you can get there. I don't know. Does anyone here make, you know, like already saying, oh, man, I'll never get there? Well, that's okay. You're not necessarily supposed to get there. That's the point. That's one of the points I'm trying to make today. But nevertheless, if you want that, save, 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 save. It says, number two, they had a low cost of living and preferred to save rather than to spend that lavishly. They saved 20% or more of their income. Don't have lots of kids, by the way. Right? I mean, this is a problem, right? They, all of a sudden, it's like, I can't save 20%. In fact, I can't even save anything. It's all, it's all going, right? Uh, they started investing their savings early in life and continued to do so prudently for many years. So this is it. So, so this is the way in which maybe, just maybe, a few of you, some of you, can actually get there. But what I'm trying to tell you today is maybe getting there is not the biblical model. Just maybe it's not the biblical model. Um, I have so many comments about this kind of stuff, and I have to hold myself back, okay? Because we um, so easily fall into this like the purpose and meaning of life. And, you know, and I'll just make one more comment about Dave Ramsey, which is fine, because his thing is about getting out of debt. That's the main thing. And get out of debt, please. If you have struggled with debt, do this. Get out of it. Find ways to get out of it. Debt is a noose around your neck. Uh, so please, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Um, now, you might be thinking that you've walked into a financial seminar this morning. Right? Maybe not. I hope not. I hope you didn't think that way. Uh, because, you know, I'm not here to try to help you get rich materially. Um, far from that. Far from that. And yet, let's be honest. In the United States, cash is king. Cash is king in the world, actually. Um, money is where it's all, what it's all about. Kind of like Calvin, you see? Uh, cash is king, and commerce is our playground. Um, but we're in Ecclesiastes today. Ecclesiastes. In fact, this is my fifth sermon in Ecclesiastes. And of course, I'm in money and wealth, right? And so I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you a little bit of insight into Solomon's discussion about material wealth. And this is just a little bit of insight because it's a big topic in Solomon's mind. It's a big topic in Ecclesiastes, uh, money and wealth. So I'm actually going to start with Ecclesiastes 5, even though I read from chapter 2. We'll get to that later. I'm going to start with Ecclesiastes 5. Before I can even start with Ecclesiastes 5, um, I'm going to try to at least get, try to give you a little context. Once you get into chapter 4, you get into this, this extended conversation about the frustrations of life. When I read, of course, chapter 2, you could say it's very frustrating because it's calling them frustrating, but frustrated. But when you get into chapter 4, he talks about different things of, of frustration. Uh, one is in, chap in, in uh, chapter 4, he talks about the oppression of the powerless. Then he talks about isolation um, a little bit later. Then he talks about the fact that loyalty is fleeting. Then he talks about the danger of taking 
hasty vows. And then he gets into this one major frustration, and it's riches. Riches bring no satisfaction. So let's take a look at this verse in chapter 5, because I think it's very telling and very helpful. I hope that you hear Jesus' words here. Right? He who loves money, Mr. Corley, maybe he needs to hear this. I don't know. I mean, I don't know him. I don't really know. I don't know him. But a lot of our gurus on money probably need to hear this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Solomon has learned the lesson regarding the limits of money and wealth. Um, Money has a purpose. He's not saying that money doesn't have a purpose. Money has a purpose. But that purpose that money has does not reach into the most important and deep areas of our lives. I don't know how, how many times we have to learn this lesson as Americans. Money has limits. It cannot help us with certain areas of our life. Money is incapable of meeting our most important needs, particularly the needs, and I hope that you're already in your mind filling this in. If I, if I gave, you the, gave you a blank, a, a blank at the end of the sentence, money is incapable of meeting our most important needs, particularly the need for, what would you think? I wonder what you'd fill that in with. This is what I fill this in with. Close, genuine relationships. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It will not fill the need of a close, personal relationship. And by the way, we all have that need. Every one of us has that need. We want to be loved. And we want to know the person who loves us. And that relationship that's most important, of course, is Jesus Christ. It's God himself. Money will not help us when it comes to God. Do you think God needs your money? No, I mean, come on, it's obvious, right? And then, but why do we spend so much time thinking about it? Um, I don't know. Um, Solomon doesn't say that in this verse here that money and wealth are bad. He says he who loves money, he who loves wealth, you see? Um, So be careful about that love that you give to the almighty dollar. Um, and, And then he goes on and he says this. He says, when goods increase, again, he's trying to show us there's an inherent problem with money. Like it's, it's in it. You know, it meets our needs in terms of getting food on the table, but when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the, their owner but to see them with his eyes? It's, 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 it's as though he's saying, look, okay, I get a lot of money. Now I can make sure I have food on the table. I get my security there, which shouldn't be the case, but nevertheless... But then what happens is that people start to see that I have money and pretty soon I find myself only enjoying it to the extent that I can use it to help others. In other words, there's some pleasure in being able to see that your wealth and your money helps others, but I wanted that money and wealth for me. But people, no. 
and you find yourself being pulled to help others. I think this is what's going on here. It's a little bit mysterious stuff, but um, but but what happens is is that is that we become little Scrooges, right? We become little Scrooges. Like I don't want anyone to give me my money. I got to keep it for me because I got my stuff. You know, that's what we become. So money is really carries with it its own problems. It does. And then and then he says, look, it actually. It's actually worse than that. In verse 12, he says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. The person the idea here is that person who really doesn't have money, but he, but he or she works hard. And sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or, or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And this is a problem. When you have wealth, guess what happens? All of a sudden, you worry about what are you going to do with it? I've got too much money. You probably don't have that problem. Okay, I'm not going to ask if you have that problem, but you probably don't have that problem. <laughs> but people who do have that problem, people who are wealthy, have to deal with this constant problem with, am I giving enough? Am I helping enough? Am I doing what I should? You know why they worry about that? Because there's something inside of us that knows that we have to give an account to God. Even people who aren't Christian know that Somehow, some way, that big man upstairs, as they refer to him so often, he's going to like be asking me how I use the things that I have. That might happen. It bothers me. And I can't sleep at night because I, I'm worried about whether or not I'm using my money the right way. And so Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he, t- he says, yeah, you do have to go to God. You, he is going to judge you. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Even the church, even Christians, especially Christians, you see, are going to be held accountable for what they have done. And you can throw all your wealth into that. Have you used it? And so forth. This is tough stuff. So be careful. Be careful. Be careful about loving money. Because if you get rich materially speaking, then you're going to be responsible with it, responsible for it before God. That's a tough word for us. I don't hear that word being spoken by you know, Christian radio people who are trying to get us to save, our, save a lot of money. I don't really hear that accountability thing very often. Okay, so uh, later in chapter 5, he goes on. I want to talk to you about two different people. This is very interesting, uh, Solomon's view of money here. Chapter 5, first person. Okay, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. That's the key in this, in this, in this, about this person power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You know, um, not bad, right? Not bad to be wealthy, to be you know, enjoying your life, to be spending money for, for whatever you want to do, that you get to enjoy your wealth and do things and so forth. Not a bad place to be. These are the people who live fully in the present and who have money. 
And there's great value here to be living fully in the present and enjoy your money. But it's of limited value, remember. But there's value. There's value here, okay? Uh, this is a person who you don't see anything about being sad here. Then look at person number two. There's a problem inherent in all this because person number two, when you get to Ecclesiastes chapter six, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possession, and honor. Remember the person before? The person before didn't have honor. The person before, person number one, just had the wealth, but didn't have the honor. People didn't really, we were not really impressed with him because he used his money for himself. Wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing and all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. So if you become rich, maybe you'll enjoy it. And just that's a, that's a gift for the present. But if you're wise, guess what happens to you? There's an inherent problem with the possibility of judgment. And you know it. You know it. This is a person who has wisdom and is aware of the, of the possible judgment of the future. God does not give that person the power to enjoy his or her possessions because a person has enough wisdom to see that this might be a big problem. The people like you, you have honor. But there's a problem with being wealthy. Do you think our culture needs to read this stuff, by the way? I mean, this is wisdom from the ancient Hebrews, you see, that we need to be aware of, that we need to understand. Okay. All right. Wow, only 10 minutes before 12? That's too bad for all of you. Okay? All right. All right. Um, let's take a look at, at chapter 2. Because this, this topic is so important in terms of wealth and possessions. I know that so many of us don't live there. But this is a major topic in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, who had everything, right? He had just all these riches. Uh, verse, verse 12, all right? <sighs> Hopefully this warns you not to love money and wealth. Verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. He hated it. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And all who knows, and, and, and I'm sorry, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must Leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. You know what he's telling us? See all these problems. You start to see all these problems with, with money and wealth and loving money and wealth. You see all these problems with it. You know what he's talking about here? He said the problem with, with, with money and wealth is that there's injustice. 
I mean, if I go out, and I, the, we live in America, right? So there's a lot of self-starting type people, a lot of entrepreneurs and so forth. We make a lot of money. Well, I mean, not necessarily a lot of us do this, but some do, right? They work hard, they work hard, they work hard, they work hard, they work hard. And I'm all for that. I'm, I believe in pe people working hard and so forth. I believe in being, people being paid because they work hard and all that. So please, don't misunderstand me whatsoever. But, the, but there's this inherent problem. I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. In other words, there's an inherent injustice to working hard and then just you're, you, you're going to die. It's got to go to the next person. And that person may not deserve it, probably won't deserve it. Right? And so, so one of the things that Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us is that, look, to put your life into this whole money-making, wealth-accumulating uh, process is foolish. He's not saying don't get out of debt. He's not saying to use your money the right way. He's not saying that one shouldn't be paid for what he or she is worth. He's not saying there isn't some value in having money and wealth. But he is saying this is not what it's about. It is not what it's about. Um, you know, Mr. Corley, do you really want to be teaching people that that is your primary motivation in life, that that's what people should, should, should go for? There's two areas of life that people fall into here that are not Christian, but we see it in the church all the time. I see it in the church all the time. One way is to live only in the present. Just live in the present. You know, uh, I might as well have fun. I might as well just be happy and do whatever I want to. Just might as well just live in the present. Don't worry about the future. That is not a Christian idea. We all must come before the judgment seat of Christ. We do not live only in the present. We do live in the present, but we look at the present for what it's, for what it's worth. The other huge problem that we have is accumulating wealth is primarily for worldly purposes. Why do people want to get money? Lots of it. I'll tell you why. It happens in the church all the time. Because they want comfort, pleasure, and security in it. They want that to be their security. And so they've got to build this huge, huge nest egg and so forth because that is really their security. Let me tell you something. There's nothing wrong with, trying to, with, with attempting to have a good retirement. Please, please do not misunderstand me. But what is our primary goal in life? Our primary goal in life is not the accumulation of wealth. A primary goal in life is to make a difference and to live for Jesus Christ. Um, both these perspectives are about self. But our perspective is about Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't say anything to his disciples about, you know, and, you know, go and do these things and be my witnesses in all Judea and in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth because when you get done with that, you're going to really be rich in this world. He didn't say that, does he? Actually, those disciples, those apostles, lost their lives. They were not rich men, materially speaking, right? Our primary goal as Christians is to get our minds into trusting God and His purposes, 
He wants us to live this way. He expects us to live this way. Um, this is the reason why I began this morning with Acts chapter 2. And I've got to ask the, that's the church. Do we live this out? Because from Luke's point of view, this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is it. Sometimes say, well, this is just an idealistic thing. This is really, you know, Luke, he's just, he's sitting on a cloud right now. This is not realistic and all this kind of stuff. Now, this is tough stuff to apply, especially in the American church setting. I admit it. But Luke doesn't give us any indication that this is an idealistic thing. This is what he, he expects. And this is what Jesus expects of us as people. He expects this of us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Nothing in here about devoting ourselves to getting a big retirement plan going. Not that that's bad, but be careful. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Do you see where the security comes from in the church? It comes through relationship with Jesus and relationship with one another. Our security is in this belief, which is true, right? That God is at work in this place. That God isn't more at work in our relationships. Because notice verse 45. They trusted that Jesus was in the church so much that they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, I'm not telling anyone here who has lots of money to sell all that you have and give it to the church. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying you better be listening. You better be listening because the reality is, is that God will call you to account for the things that you possess. And I hope that you have a heart to love your brothers and sisters that you're going to be spending eternity with. Because we're all brothers and sisters here. It goes on. One more slide and then we'll finish. Look at the response. Look what happens. We actually take, make the, the primary goal of life Jesus' goal of life. Loving each other, loving him, listening to the teaching, breaking bread together, being in fellowship, being in prayer together. By the way, we have a prayer ministry on Wednesday nights. I don't know if you remember that, thought of that. Right? We have a teaching ministry on Thursday nights. I don't know if you remember that. We have these things. We occasionally eat together here, right? And, and, and hopefully we're doing these things. Look at what God does. And this is what we need to be praying for. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Notice the, notice the temple, which is where the early church worshipped at first, on the very early days in the temple. Luke tells us later it's going to be Solomon's portico they meet. Tending the temple together, breaking bread in their 
home. So now you have this two-part thing. You have people coming together for corporate worship, and then you have this very personal thing about getting together with Christians in their homes. You have, this, is the, this, is the, this is the way the church is designed, right? Life together in the home. Smaller group. Larger group, life together in the temple. So life together in the congregation here at church, together corporately. And hopefully you know each other enough to have each other into your home, home groups. That's the way it's defined. That's the biblical model, by the way, for living life together, living the Christian life. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Now I'm going to tell you right now, because I I, uh, emboldened the word generous, that word in the Greek means to be smooth. No bumps. Isn't that a great image? Nothing to get in the way. Because it's the one thing, the only, you know what's only, the only thing that's going to get in the way of, of, of true Christian ministry in this place is when our heart's like this. It's all bumpy. It's when our heart is hard. It's when our heart's, heart is bumpy. Luke says, look, generous, smooth hearts. Praising God, having favor with all the people. Why? Because when we as a church really love each other, the world's going to look at us and go, wow, those people, they really love God. Maybe I want to be a part of that. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who are being saved. So this is what it's about. The American story, it's a great story. American story, the American narrative for us is to go and get all you can for yourself. Go, go, go. Go work hard. Get all you can for yourself. Save a lot, whatever it would be. Take whatever path you want. Dreamer's path, virtuoso's path, corporate ladder path. Saver's path, whatever you want. Take that path. Go. Devote your life to it. Devote your life to it. Because that's what it's at. That's where it's about. That's where it's at. Getting all that you can, as much as you can, because it's about me. And the biblical model is this. Use all that you have for Jesus. Use it all for Jesus. Don't hold back. You see? I'm so delighted because I know so many of you are doing this already. But this is the view that we must have. Any other view is not a Christian view. It puts us back into Ecclesiastes, into depression. Because it's vanity, striving after wind. Nothing. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that you have entered into our world through Jesus Christ. That we don't live in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a good warning for us, but we don't live there. But you have decided to come to us and to speak to us gentle words so that we could be ready to go before you one day when you return. And we do know, Lord, that you're going to return. And we ask you to come even today. Come, Lord Jesus. But please prepare our hearts. Make them smooth and soft hearts that we would do the right things with with that which you have given us because everything is from your hand. I just ask you to bless this church over and over and over and over again as we enjoy being your people, being your children. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.